This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Joining me today is Dr. Steve Ball, professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. Steve has taught at Westminster since 1982 and is the author of several articles, two Greek grammars, and a contributor to the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. All these titles and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Steve, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me back. Well, here we are in Episode 2 of the new season, Season 4 of Office Hours, which is a study of the book of Hebrews. So let's dive in in a moment, but we have just a couple of preliminary things that we need to hit before we go on. The listener, of course, will want to go back and listen to Episode 1 to get all of the background and all of that discussion and the setting and the authorship. But there are a couple of things we want to sort out before we dive into verse 1, chapter 1. The first question I have is, it's been suggested to me that Hebrews is actually a sermon, and possibly even some have suggested it's a sermon principally on Psalm 110. What do you think about this? And talk a little bit about the genre of Hebrews as we get ready to dive in. Well, it's an interesting question, and I've gone back and forth on it, but our colleague, Dennis Johnson, has helped me recently on that, and he's been very persuasive. So I hope you would have him uh, speak on this to tell you more specifics. But in a nutshell, there are two possible options of what this is. One is it's a oration, so a speech such as were given at the festivals throughout the Greco-Roman world. They would have been very familiar to the original audience throughout the year. Various contests or cities would invite famous speakers to come and speak on certain topics. And that was their main entertainment, is to listen to trained, polished speakers speak on whatever and just hear them talk. The difficulty with that view is, yes, this is a very polished effective oratory, but those kind of speeches don't unpack texts like we're dealing with here at length. And that's where it is closer to a sermon. And this is where Dr. Johnson has made a very persuasive case recently that in particular when it starts unpacking certain texts, Psalm 110 is certainly central to the argument of Hebrews. It really is more like what a sermon is, and that is the exposition of Old Testament texts, in this case there are many being unpacked, and explaining what they mean both in their original setting and to us. So it is more like a sermon. It's interesting if we think of Hebrews as a sermon, because we have records, summaries of sermons in Acts, but if you, just for an exercise— read one of those sermons out loud, say Peter's sermon in Acts 2, it's really not a very long sermon. It's only a few minutes, and you can explain here in a moment. In the ancient world, no orator, no public speaker worth his salt would talk for less than an hour because it was expected that you would be able to keep your audience's attention for at least an hour, and they might go more than that, maybe two hours. Well, in Letters to Friends, one of the 
great orators of the late first century, Pliny the Younger, talks about how he spoke at the uh, the Roman Senate for five hours and everybody was still paying very careful attention. In a later epistle, he talks about a seven-hour speech that he gave and how uh, eventually he had to have one of his slaves or freedmen hold his hand up so that his gestures could be more vigorous. You know? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, we have a 19th century expression, a stem winder, which goes back to the days when people wore watches that you had to actually wind up. And so the I think the implication is the speech was so long that your watch ran down. (laughs) Now, in the early church, three-hour sermons were fairly common. Is that correct? I don't know, but I would not be surprised. I remember studying that years ago that at least a three-hour worship service, including... Oh, yeah. I mean, worship services would have been much longer than we're accustomed to. And people were standing the exactly. whole time. And so okay. we're in a, an entirely different context. So it's important for people to understand right. that we're looking at a book that was given around 64 AD to a mixed Jewish Gentile congregation who are being tempted to go back to Moses and back to the ceremonies and back to the ritual daily sacrifice. Summarize for us the argument briefly and then also the character. You wanted to say something about how it holds together. Yeah, his argument is that Just because Christ has ascended into heaven and we don't offer guilt sacrifices to God anymore that we were used to, both Jews and non-Jews had sacrifices throughout their calendar and offering actual animal sacrifices, which sounds kind of gruesome to us, but you really should think barbecue a very pleasant, wonderful experience and a kind of a big party. In some respects. But this is the, yeah. this is the ancient world, right? We, in in right. our world, if we want something to eat, we go to the grocery store right. and it just magically appears. Yeah, you'd have to cut the neck of the animal. Exactly. So there's a certain degree of gruesomeness. Well, you didn't grow up in my world. We, you know, we just do that all the time. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> not really. Yeah, I'm familiar with, with uh, okay. the cattle and we chickens. We Westerners, and... we just, exactly. uh, you know, take the cow out back. It, it wasn't that long ago that people in our culture were preparing their own food, so sure. it would have been a little less foreign to them. But right. to, to us, and that's right. I mean, the listeners probably listening to this on some sort of portable electronic device. So, I mean, it's like <laughs> technically a rather different world. But back to the point, he's, he's showing them that those kind of sacrifices that they were used to with all the smells and all the ritual were repeated earthly and ultimately ineffective. The divinely authorized one, the commanded ones in the Old Covenant themselves were looking to Christ and testifying to the effectiveness of one sacrifice to come. And in Christ Jesus, we have it, a heavenly sacrifice, yes, on earth, but effective in heaven in the very presence of God. That's the gist of his argument. But one really important thing about Hebrews that uh, I want our listeners to understand is when you're reading Corinthians or you're reading, you know, either first or second Corinthians or you're reading Romans, Paul will make arguments and then he'll kind of move beyond that to some other point. Hebrews never does. He is always still on the same point in great complexity, adding to it and developing it. But from the beginning of the book into the middle of chapter 13, where he really gets to more the letter kind of stuff, talking about the mechanics of, if the Lord wills, I'll be with you with uh, our brother Timothy, that sort of thing. He really is still arguing one point from beginning to end. And what that means is, when you're looking at one passage in Hebrews, you really have to connect it to things he's already said and is about to say, because sometimes those issues are developed, and you understand it better when you see the whole. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
One thing that uh, occurs to me that might be useful, if the listener is following along, and I hope you have your Bible open, it might actually be useful to have two Bibles, one with Hebrews, maybe on your left, and then another where you can look up various Old Testament passages and references on your right. Because as we begin to dive into chapter 1, one of the outstanding features of chapter 1, and you see this laid out for you nicely, for example, in the English Standard Version, but it's also laid out for the reader. If perchance he or she is following along in the Greek Testament, you can see it there as well, is a series of indented quotations beginning with verse 5, carrying on through verse 6, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and then various Old Testament passages. Talk for a moment about the use of the Old Testament in Hebrews. Hebrews is a model for our own interpretation of the biblical text, both of the New Testament and particularly of the Old. One of our convictions at the seminary is that Scripture itself has to be the standard for pursuing our own interpretation of Scripture. And we call that Scripture is canonical. It means it's the ruler by which we judge everything ultimately. But even the method of interpreting Scripture has to come from Scripture. And Hebrews is a model of that because he interprets Scripture time and time again. And he teases out implications of the text. But he's always interpreting the text and showing us how it has to be interpreted. We come away seeing that Scripture from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, is Christ-centered. And you see that right at the beginning, the verse you mentioned from Psalm 2 in Hebrews 1.5, you are my son, this day I've begotten you. That's the Father speaking to the Son in his incarnation. That's how Hebrews is interpreting that. He's interpreting it with Christ as the center of all of that revelation. So in its original setting, Psalm 2 or Psalm 110, which has a similar sort of theme, a psalm of royal accession and installation, it does have its original context. But according to Hebrews, the meaning of the psalm and the original intention of the psalm even isn't exhausted with the accession of David. Right. Hebrews is not denying that those psalms are speaking to the Davidic king. But The Davidic king is a type of Christ. He is a model, a portrait of Christ to come in his office. Those offices were installed by God to show us Christ. So when those psalms are speaking to David or Solomon in their office, they are models of the divine intra-Trinitarian, so between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, communication regarding our redemption often. That's how Hebrews is interpreting this, that that's the ultimate meaning. It's not denying the immediate meaning in their original context, but he's showing us that in the day of fulfillment that we live in, he calls it the last of these days, we're not dealing with earthly stuff anymore when we're dealing with Christ. We're not dealing with types anymore. We're not in the Old Testament. We're in a completely new era where heavenly realities are accessed directly through Jesus. Now, I have to be careful. I mean, directly in the sense of when you're dealing with Jesus, you have a mediator who is a heavenly person. He has come down as son, the very son of God, divine in all attributes. And Hebrews hastens to add, like us in every respect, so truly human. 
truly human, <laughs> a real human. Yes, Hebrews 2, it makes a big deal out of that as well. He shared with us in blood and flesh in every respect that he might be a sympathetic high priest. But it's the fact that we're not dealing with types anymore. We're dealing in the day of reality. Reality. I think that's a huge notion because we tend to think of the real things as being the things that we can taste, touch, see, and so forth, the things that we experience empirically. But according to Hebrews, this is hard to get our minds around, but according to Hebrews, the real stuff is the stuff that you can't see, taste, touch. And it's that stuff that has broken into human history and to which believers who are united to Christ by the Spirit through faith are being led in a sort of royal procession, <laughs> right? Not yeah. to get too far ahead of ourselves, yeah. but we're headed towards and we're in touch with, in contact with, through Christ, realities that are even more real, if you will, than the stuff that we think of as real. Well, more real in the sense of permanent. You can take this throughout the book. As I said earlier, it's one unified sermon. It's a one unified thing, if we can put it that way. But he takes us, what you were just saying, he takes us in various ways to chapter 12. That God has said, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. And then he develops that and says, we receive an unshakable kingdom. And that's what that heavenly reality represents. It's the permanency of the new creation. That's what the reality is that's been inaugurated in Christ. It's a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth that has already been guaranteed and in Christ installed through resurrection. And the reality of that has broken into our existence and it won't go away. So we are people with a foot in two realms. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. This creation, this world is real. We have one foot here, but it's only our tippy toes anymore. <laughs> because, because as Paul would say, you are seated with Christ in the high heavenlies. Keep your mind fixed on where you really are. You really are in the new creation in Christ Jesus. That's where your citizenship is. That's where the reality that it's not only that we hope for, but has been guaranteed and installed for us even now. And we experience it in regeneration, being born again, and in absolute, utter, total forgiveness of all of our sins. When we come back then after this break, we're going to start and we'll look at verse 1 and we'll just start working through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the book of Hebrews. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 480 8474 Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So, Steve, in verse 1, it says, In many ways and in many places, a long time ago, to paraphrase, God spoke to the fathers through or in the prophets. 
And then it goes on in verse 2 to set up a contrast. In the last of these days, literally, he has spoken to us, or he spoke to us, in the Son whom he made heir of all things, through whom he created the ages. Explain those verses. (laughs) (laughs) Well, our translations have kind of interpreted the first phrase by the origin of the words rather than what they meant in the first century. In their usage. In their usage. So the first word, etymology, the origin of the word means in various portions, various sections, various parts. But it's used in contrast to an outline. And its meaning is clear from other uses. It means in great detail. So it looks like he's saying... God spoke piecemeal with a lot of different types of communication in the Old Testament through the prophets. It's what it looks like he's saying. But in actuality, he's saying God spoke about these things in great detail. God spoke at length and with a lot of particulars and details about these things. And as the book unfolds, he's going to show you that the Old Testament really is the foundation for the New Covenant religion. And Moses is a servant of Jesus. So there is, a, in Hebrews, a profound unity of what we like to call the covenant of grace. Right. That God has been achieving a singular purpose of redeeming his people through Jesus Christ over a long period of time. And right. Hebrews is reflecting on that. And he's setting out from the beginning something that's critical to his argument. And I put it this way. You want to go back to the old-time religion of the Old Testament, listen to what the old-time religion people actually said. Listen to the prophets. Listen to Moses. Listen to God. They're preaching Jesus, <laughs> just like I am. So it's fine to say, I'm going to go back to Moses, because right. the writer to the Hebrews says, great. Come to Jesus. <laughs> because Moses works right. for Jesus, right. and he was pointing to Jesus. So if you're right. really paying attention, which is not a brand new argument no. in Scripture, right? No. Jesus said in yeah. John eight fifty six, you want to be Abraham's children, right. you should believe in me, because right. Abraham saw my day. Right. Rejoice. Earlier in John, he says, Moses wrote of me. You want to hold to Moses? Well, Moses wrote about me. And John 12, Isaiah was right. talking about me. Yeah. Uh, Luke 24, they were yeah. walking along the Emmaus Road, and Jesus right. showed them from all the scriptures. Right. So what Hebrews is doing is not... No, it is not novel. But it is more extensive. Mm-hmm. If you ever wanted to know, well, what kinds of things did Jesus say on the Emmaus Road? This would at least give you some yeah. sense of the kinds of things. The uh, three divisions of the Old Testament are the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. The author of Hebrews quotes from every section of the Old Testament. So he's invoking the whole thing. The whole thing. When you say the Law, you mean the first five books, right. the books of Moses, mm-hmm. the Torah, mm-hmm. and then the Prophets refers to... All the Prophets. It would include... The major Prophets, the right. minor Prophets. Right. And, and well, Isaiah, some... Jeremiah, Malachi, okay. Zechariah. And then some of the historical books, right. perhaps. And yeah. then the Writings refers to... Primarily the Psalms, Proverbs... Ecclesiastes. So the wisdom literature. Right. Okay. But you're going to have to talk to the Old Testament people about that. <laughs> I do New Testament without those guys. As we have the... I just read that stuff through Hebrew. As we as we have the, the Bible, it's arranged a little differently than the writer to the Hebrews might have encountered it. The writer of the Hebrews had scrolls. He had copies of translations of particular books then, in Greek. And then the order of the books... There was no order to the books. He would own a scroll of Genesis. There was no collection of all under one book cover. They used scrolls yeah, in no, his day. What we have is a codex. 
They originated fairly early, but they were 2nd or 3rd century A.D. Post-apostolic. Yes. So his medium of Scripture would have been scrolls. Oh, yeah. So the uh, Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts had a scroll of Isaiah, and he didn't understand what he read, and then Philip helps him understand it. Okay. So they encountered Scripture differently than we do. Yes. All right. So extensively and to some degree intensively throughout the history of salvation prior to the incarnation of Jesus, the same God who redeemed us in Christ spoke to the fathers through the prophets. Now there we have embedded a very high view of Scripture. Yes. He doesn't regard Scripture as accidentally God's Word or something right. even that becomes God's Word, but he regards it as... God speaking. God speaking. Yep. And as far as the writer to the Hebrews is concerned, it's impossible that God should make a mistake, God should change his mind, or be something other than he is. And saying to the fathers, even the Gentile people should identify with him. So Abraham is our father as well as the father of the Jews. These are, you know, these are our people. So there's a unity to this revelation. He spoke to our fathers back then, Palai, you know. A long time ago. A long time ago. In the prophets, through the prophets. But then there's this transition, as you brought out in your rendering and introduction. In these last days, see, there, we're not in those old time yeah. times anymore. This is what the fathers were looking forward to, the age of fulfillment. So one way to organize Hebrews is to show that he understands that we live in the day of fulfillment, no longer promise, but this is the time of fulfillment. Everything was geared toward today, and these are the last days. That phrase comes from the prophets when they said, in the last of the days, God would do this. And he's quoting that in Greek translation, that phrase from Isaiah and Jeremiah for the great time of fulfillment. He's saying, these are those days. Why? Because God spoke to us in the Son. This is a different way of thinking about the last days than sometimes evangelicals and some Reformed folk have sometimes thought about the last days. In my lifetime, I can remember lots of excitement and interest about the last days, and here's a book that explains the last days, and you can read your newspaper in one hand and your Bible in the other, and it's all about the last days. Or the Mayan calendar, right? Or, or something, yeah. Well, now here in Hebrews 1, we have this remarkable expression with which the listener may or may not be familiar, that already in 64 AD, thereabouts, the writer is saying, no, the last days— of God's working in redemptive history have already been inaugurated. Right. Not to say they were entirely fulfilled. And what makes that true? What makes it true is he's spoken to us definitively in the Son, introducing the realities of the new creation in the Son. The incarnate Son has come, and there's no going back. We live in the last days because of that great event. The verse I often point to, and if your listeners want to uh, look at this sometime, it's really clear. It's First uh, John 2.18. Little children, this is the last hour. Just as you've heard that an Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. Therefore, from this fact alone, we know that this is the last hour. I mean, it's really clear that he says, okay, there's one event that shows that we're right on the edge of the second coming. It's the presence of an antichrist. Well, we have lots of candidates, so we live in the era of the last hour. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So it's been the last days and the last hour for a long time. (laughs) For a long time. 2,000 years. Right. So for as long as it was between Abraham and Jesus, for that long it's been since Jesus. Right. And we're still waiting. And, of course, we have a reasonable hope and expectation that Jesus will honor his promise and he'll return. 
But we ought to keep things in perspective right? when we think about the last days. Jesus makes us clear, and he says, don't be worried. You're not going to miss out when I come. It will be like the lightning flashes from the east and the west. No one will mistake when I come. Don't go out to the desert because somebody says, well, he's out here, and it's a secret thing. So he's very concerned that we not lose heart. So we are in the last days, and we'll know. But we should live on the edge of our seats, waiting for the second coming, because he can come at any moment. And according to the writer of the Hebrews, then, he's saying, look, if you go back to Moses, and if you go back to the types in the shadows, you're actually going back away from and leaving the final things, the last things, for the former things. You're leaving the fulfillment of the promises for the promises, and you're emptying those promises of the reality because... God has introduced them in Christ. If you leave Jesus, you don't have anything. You're throwing away the realities that even those fathers heard about, testified to, and looked forward to. They believed in Jesus. So should you. To anticipate several episodes ahead, I mean, we're getting right to chapter 11. Yeah. It's not just faith in the generic. Right. It's faith in the specific. The next clause in verse 2, whom he made the heir of all things. In the first century, in this context, for this writer to say heir of all things and made heir, somebody could misunderstand that and say, well, it says made, and they could maybe draw some Christological conclusions that would be unfortunate and heretical. But what does it mean to say made heir? I think that verb is clear. It means appoint is a better rendering of it. Okay, good. It is a verb that's used for appointment to an office. And you're living in the first century when all the emperors were adopted and appointed to be the heir of the preceding emperor. And it means that they would inherit that office, that position. You know, it's most notable when Julius Caesar, in his will, posthumously adopted his grandnephew Augustus, who was at that time named Octavian. And it means that they become the godfather. They become the next ruler overall. So in this context, Hebrews is actually saying, whom he appointed as heir of all things, mean that he's the ruler over all. He's the king this over all these things. Yes, it is. He's the one who is appointed to take over the whole outfit. So he has this right from God. Now, you know, our listeners need to remember that the New Testament authors are always particularly emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. In our day, the humanity of Jesus is easy for our contemporaries to believe. They think he's just a man, but his deity is not easy for us to understand. Well, in the first century, it's the opposite. People knew about God's appearing all the time, but for a God to become a true human was spectacularly unbelievable. So the New Testament authors are emphasizing his real humanity. And then to make it worse, to submit to humiliation. Right. And as Hebrews goes on to point out, humiliation and punishment, Roman punishment, the crucifixion, outside the city, which is the place where you put all the disgusting things, the unclean things, to add that layer is to make Christianity ostensibly foolishness, as Paul says, and and, and almost impossible for a first century person to understand or accept or believe. Right. Where is his glory? I mean, they expect him to, to wave his hand and simply eradicate his enemies and stand in glory, but they take away the cross and the atonement. As offensive then as as it is now, but maybe in somewhat different ways. So when he says in verse 2, Hebrews 1-2, in the last of these days, 
God spoke to us in the Son, whom he appointed as heir over all things. It is his humanity. He's appointed at his exaltation to this place of rule because he's finished the task that his father laid out for him by becoming incarnate and giving himself on the cross for his people. But then he goes further and says, through whom also he made the ages, the worlds. Which is an interesting expression. Well, it's because it's the Son who is himself divine. So you have the humanity of the Son incarnate, and you have the divinity of the Son in two phrases, in one verse. So there's what we would call Catholic or universal Christology, the doctrine of Christ that you find in the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the definition of Chalcedon, those ancient early Christian declarations. And the authors of those creeds actually read Hebrews. And were influenced by it. (laughs) All right. Well, time is getting away, so I want to hit just a couple of other things before we wrap up today. And that is the traditional way of translating the next noun is effulgence or radiance. Right. Good way to do that. I've struggled trying to explain what effulgence or radiance of glory is. What does that mean? Oh, you should think of sunbeams radiating out from the sun. And he's talking about the connectedness of the sun to divine glory. He is himself shares with the Father in full divine glory. And so he he's just using an image there that shows that the glory of the sun is not different from the Father's own glory. They're equal in power and glory, which is what the Nicene Creed says. In Old Testament terms, think of Moses in the tabernacle. He's face to face with glory. He comes out. His radiance is shining. He puts a veil over, which Paul hastens to point out to say that's because that glory back then was Old Covenant glory, and it's fading. It didn't originate with Moses. Yeah, it was derivative. Now Jesus is, according to Hebrews— The radiance of God's glory. He's the manifestation. Right, and we see—you see sunbeams— We see the Son incarnate because he's truly incarnate. He who has seen me has seen the the Father. Father. God the Son was in that tabernacle with Moses. And now (laughs) here he is in our time, in human flesh, manifesting, radiating the glory of God. So when we talk about the glory of God and, and so forth, it would be helpful if we connected it concretely to Jesus and not to think of it necessarily in the abstract Sometimes when we talk about the glory of God, it's easy to abstract that away and sort of redefine that and recharacterize it. But for Hebrews, glory and Jesus, who suffered, died, was humiliated, those things are all very closely connected in his mind, don't you think? Yes. The second phrase— Yeah, the character. It's a term used for stamping coins. Back then, they would take a lump of silver, and they had a negative stamp. They would place a stamp on the lump of silver and hit it with a hammer, and it created the positive image in the silver. And this word character is in that context. It means it completely represents the image so that you have the stamp itself and then the image formed in the silver mirror one another. Mm. But in this instance, the stamp of his being. Of the divine being. Of the divine being. He himself shares in God's own being. The noun here is a maybe a familiar noun if the listener has some theological familiarity. It's the stamp of the hypostasis, which ironically in the development of theology came to be referred to the divine persons. So we say now in Trinitarian theology, one being three persons and hypostasis we tend to associate with persons. But here in Hebrews, it actually has reference to being the divine being. So 
people sometimes say, if only I could see God. And <laughs> according to Hebrews... You've seen him if you've seen Jesus. If you've seen Jesus, which of course is what our Lord said. Right. right? Oh, show me the Father. Right. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Quit asking to see something that, frankly, you're not qualified to see. Because I am the self-disclosure. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's the self-disclosure. So there's a lot of uh, symphonic overlap between the teaching of our Lord, the teaching of the Apostle John, Paul, of course, in a variety of ways here in Hebrews. All right, and then finally, Hebrews turns back to a theme that he touched on earlier. He sustains, he's bearing, literally, all things by the power of his Word. So he's the one through whom everything was created— and he's sustaining He's the powerful, everything. sovereign, omnipotent upholder of all existence. Without him, all things would fly apart into nothingness. So he not only is the word, the self-disclosure, the radiance, the effulgence, the character, the stamp, he is the sustainer, sovereign God over all things. Colossians one seventeen has something similar. It's a center of a kind of a poetic uh, statement, but... He says, all things exist in him. All things are sustained in him. He is the upholder of all creation. When we think about Genesis 1, in the beginning, God said, let there be. We have to correlate that with Hebrews 1, where it's explained that it's the Son who is upholding everything by the power of his word. Right. Let me insert this now, though. As I said at the beginning of this episode— Hebrews is not just giving us a series of discrete teachings on interesting and valuable and, you know, wonderful theological points, but they're part of his argument from beginning to end. So the question you should ask when you're hearing this is, how does that support his argument that the Old Covenant is revelation is pointing to Jesus, and he's the reality, the fulfillment of those promises. And if you abandon him, you're abandoning all biblical religion. And this is part of his argument. He's saying that in Jesus, you're not dealing with, with some phantasm, something mystical that we're inventing, some experience that uh, moves in and out, some shade. This is the very creator and sustainer of all creation who became incarnate and gave himself for us. And he didn't just disappear. He is still the center of all creation. So you can't abandon Jesus. He's the center of all of our reality. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.